<laughs> right, well, welcome everybody. I had a, a super introduction lined up, which I'm uh, not going to use anymore, because... Uh, it involves teenagers. The <laughs> <laughs> popularity of the festival with the teenage population. No, um, because today, uh, a Kenyan runner, Elliot Kipchoge, has just run the first sub-two-hour marathon. Yeah. Uh, and I think that really does deserve a round of applause. And... Um, and Adana, you, you've met him. Yes, I've met him many times. I've been to his training camp in, uh, in uh, Katiga, in Kenya. Uh, I actually trained with his group while I was researching the book, uh, but he wasn't there that day. Uh, I was saying to you earlier, at the time, he wasn't such a superstar as he is now, so it wasn't a big deal that he wasn't there. It was the, uh, the guy who was just about to break the record in the London Marathon was running with me that day, and the guy who then went on to win the Olympics in London 2012. So the fact Elliot Kipchoge wasn't there was not a big deal, but uh, it's a kind of shame now. <laughs> I, uh, I joined them on a long run, uh, and it was uh, as amusing as you can imagine uh, being me running the day. <laughs> I didn't last very long. <laughs> I mean, I, I watched it this morning, and uh, I saw the interview with him afterwards, and um, he struck me as an incredibly humble man actually, which all the Kenyans did in, uh, through your account and your book, Running with the Kenyans. Um, and it was uh, just a, a really uplifting experience to watch, actually very emotional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Kenyan running phenomena is, I mean, when I, when I first started looking at it, and the, I'd always been fascinated by Kenyan runners as a child, I was a very keen runner, and, and I realized I knew nothing about where they came from, how they lived, what they did. And I really wanted to tell that story because it's one of the most incredible stories in sport. It's probably the most accessible, most universal sport in the world. There's every big city has either a half marathon or a marathon with 10, 15, 20, 30,000 people training, putting in their effort, doing as well as they can. And every race virtually is won by Kenyans or Ethiopians. And there can be very few sports dominated to such an extent by such a uh, an interesting, like, tiny little corner of the world. Where, and, and when I, I started thinking about writing the book, and I looked around, and there was no story. Nobody had been there and done that. I just thought, that's a book I would love to read, let alone, let alone write. So as nobody else had done it, I thought, I'd better go and do it. Now, you're a, a very experienced marathon runner. Uh, have you got a, is it a 250 PD? 250, yes. Which is extraordinary. All relative. All relative. They <laughs> um, <laughs> not even admit that. <laughs> well, you can certainly admit that in our household. Um, um, and I, I mean, the thing about uh, Kipchoge is that it's sort of the limits of um, what a human can achieve. And uh, I mean, we're here ostensibly to talk about the rise of the ultra runners, which is uh, your latest book. And that's also the same thing. It's uh, these people who do uh, this brutal sport, you know, uh, we're talking about uh, ultramarathons that are a distance of 50, 100, up to 200 miles. And it's also uh, the same process, how how far can they push themselves? Um, the longest race, incidentally, is 3,100 miles. Is it? That's all around one city block in New York. Oh, that's, that's a transcendence. Self-transcendence, 3,100 miles. Absolutely. Well, so, we might get to yeah, that a bit so, later. When you're talking about limits, yeah, exactly. Where, where, where are they? But it, it's interesting because initially, when you were commissioned uh, to uh, run a race and then write about it, it, it wasn't something that really appealed to you 
so much. Um, and I was just wondering why that was and, and what made you change your mind and, and realize that, hey, this is something I could write about. Yeah, I mean, as, as someone who'd been to Kenya and run with very serious runners, I considered myself, in, in my own world, in my own mind, a, a fairly serious runner who was aiming to get faster and to train harder. And I looked at ultra running and it just seemed, when you look at the speeds people are running, you look at the end of the race and you work out that average per mile speed, you think, that's just jogging. I mean, mm. I could jog for a day. I mean, that's not hard. And, uh, and it didn't seem like real running to me. And the carrying bags, using poles, eating food, it almost seemed to kind of cloud the water a little bit. I, it, to me, it wasn't pure running. Uh, and then I, really, then, then I really thought about it when I got offered the chance to go and run uh, a marathon across the desert in Amar for a magazine article. I didn't really want to do it at, with my running hat on, but in terms of an adventure and an experience and a, and a life adventure, I thought, well, to traverse a hundred miles in the desert on your own steam, your own power, carrying everything you need, that's going to be an incredible experience. Uh, so that's, that's how I entered it. I soon learned that those slow times that people were running, there's a reason for that. And uh, you get to a point where those speeds, like 15, 20 minutes per mile, I mean, that's pretty, pretty impressive after you've been going for 48 hours. And, you're running on sand up a mountain or whatever. I mean, just to keep moving becomes the challenge, and the challenge that uh, I struggle with many times on my journey. So you decide that you're going to write a book about ultra running. And um, as with running with the Kenyans, you set yourself a, a goal, which is to compete in, in the sport's marquee event. And this is uh, the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. It is a... 105 mile single stage ultramarathon in the Alps. Now, ultramarathon races are quite interesting because there's always lots of numbers, but always quite big. <laughs> and, um, and there's so many numbers that you sort of don't really realize what that means. But I thought about this this morning, 105 miles. I think if I walked 105 miles, I think I'd get from here to Bristol, probably. I mean, it's, it's, the distances are incredible. And this is in mountains as well. And this is in mountains, yeah. And um, I just uh, for the audience here, for anybody here who isn't an ultra ultra marathon runner, um, can, can, you just, somebody. can you just give a, a brief description of how big this event is? So yeah, the UT, so it's called the UTMB for short, the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. I mean, it's limited in size by the fact that you're running on trails in, in the Alps. So, I mean, they could, they could could get a lot bigger, but there's about two and a half thousand runners in the race. And it, there's a lottery to enter the race. So you, first of all, you have to qualify by running certain races to get points. Then once, you en once you've got the points, you enter, and then you, you've got like about a one in three chance of, of getting a place. Uh, there's also, it's like a whole week. So there's a week, it's, it's based in Chamonix in, in the Alps. And it's a whole week of races. So as well as the UTMB, which is the main race, there's about six or seven other races of various distances, which are all fiercely competitive as well, and have similar number uh, number fields. So the whole, it's like a big festival of ultra running, and all the top ultra runners in the world are in one of those races, usually, most of them. And so it becomes like, the town becomes the central hub of the world of ultra running, not only ultra running, but mountain trail running. Uh, and it's quite, it's quite an amazing feeling in the town, and you're just bumping, and if you, if you start following the sport, as I started doing, it's just, all the stars of the sport walking around the town, sitting in the cafes, 
And, uh, and, and everyone there is going through this experience, uh, and particularly the day after, when, when you finish, you get this, uh, the gilet, the, the much coveted finishes gilet, and you, you obviously wear it the next day, and so you see everybody who's been through that race, and you know what they've been through, because you've been through it. And so there's a real connection and camaraderie there, and just, you, just, you just spot each other, and you just, <laughs> well done, you did it. Yeah, and I feel sorry for all the people who have done the race but haven't finished and don't have the gilet. And, and a lot of those end up coming back the next year for that. <laughs> Can I get that gilet? <laughs> uh, so, and, but, but the backdrop to all of that, of course, is that um, ultra running has become incredibly popular in a, in a really short space of time. Yeah. I mean, you know, a number of years. Um, I think, uh, for instance, let me see. So you give some statistics. You know, in 2000, this is in the UK, so in 2000, 595 people had finished an ultra in the UK. By 2017, this had risen to 18,600. And so there's clearly a desire there for, I mean, veteran marathon runners to, to find something more in their running. They need a, a new <coughs> challenge. They need to have a feel uh, that they've achieved something um, you know, in a different way, as you say in the book, marathons are no longer enough. Yeah, there's a there's a funny moment before I decided to write the book. I'm at the uh, tea point uh, in the office. I work at the Guardian in London, and some guy knew I did a bit of running. He says to me, "Oh, you run ultra marathons, don't you?" And I was like, "No, no, I don't." Well, oh, triathlons. I was like, "No, no." Just marathons. <laughs> <laughs> and he was really disappointed that it was only a marathon. Running. Uh, and I realised, yeah, there is this inflation in, in, in distance in running. Uh, and, and there is a part of me, and it continues throughout the whole book, who still wants to cherish the fast people, people who run a mile very fast, people who even run you know, shorter distances and, and 10Ks, and, and I like that. But there is this sense that the further you go, the bigger the experience. And, uh, and I think people are after that experience of finding their own limit and, and, and doing something really epic and, and, and challenging. And, and, and the more you see other people doing it, the more you see people, and, and social media does play a role in this, when we see someone you used to know who you thought was terrible at running, running 100 miles, the more you go, God, did you see, he ran 100 miles, I, I could do that. You know, and the more people write books about it, and you think, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. So, that, so, so there is this kind of inflation and this, uh, this sense of, the word getting out there that these things are possible and that there's uh and people who do them really enjoy them so they they kind of go on about them there's some there's some it's it's, it's a difficult and i spent a lot of the book grappling with this is difficult is it really enjoyment or is there something else going on but there's something that attracts people to these races that's beyond just running it's no longer about running in fact i think ultra running is a bit of a misnomer it's it's more about moving and traversing uh, a space and time in, in, as quickly as you can, but often you're walking, often you're sitting down, <laughs> and then you're not moving, of course. But but it's all about a lot of it is about the mental state, the the challenge, dealing with with whatever comes your way, and getting through that and coming out the other end, and and it leaves you with this sense of if you can do it, and if you get through it, it leaves you with this sense of strength and this sense of accomplishment, which. It's kind of bigger than most other challenges most people face, and, and I think it takes you it takes you to a place where you think, wow, I, you know, and I, you can take that with you into the rest of the world, in the rest of your life, and, and you can feel this kind of inner steeliness that you've been somewhere, you've done, 
you know, run a hundred miles through the mountains. You, know, you can do anything. <laughs> As Elliot Kipchoge says, no human is limited. Uh, and the thing, um, the thing about this book, actually, one of, it, uh, one of the beautiful aspects about this book is that it's not just um, an abstract account of ultramarathons. It's not uh, or, or just a personal journey where you try and become an, uh, uh, an ultra runner. But it's also a, a piece of travel writing because to, the UTMB isn't a race, not like a Cornish race where you turn up on the day with a fibre and you're in that race. You have to qualify uh, by accumulating qualification points, which means that then you have to compete in other events that are equally brutal as that one. Uh, and, and so you've basically, uh, in your running, you, you've basically got to travel around the globe competing in races so you could do that one, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it is possible to accumulate those points just with UK races. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, as I was writing a book about the world of ultra running, yeah. I mean, I'd written about Kenya, I'd written about Japan, uh, and I was kind of, you know, both books had been popular, there was this idea that, you know, is there another world? Uh, and, and, and we were thinking geographically, is there another world of running? And it really wasn't an obvious place, apart from Ethiopia, which is similar to Kenya. But then I realized there's this other world of ultra running, which is not a geographical world, but it's a kind of a subculture of running. And that exists, it's a very global thing, and so I wanted to experience it in different places. So I ended up running in California, a 100-kilometer race in the Marin Headlands, north of San Francisco. Uh, there's an incredible race in South Africa called Comrades Marathon, which is the biggest ultra-marathon and the oldest ultra-marathon in the world. It's been going since 1921. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I went to Italy. There's, there's lots of races. So I ended up exploring different running, ultra-running cultures and meeting with the, the kind of people in those places, both the, the kind of ultra-running stars, but the people who support the races, the people who put on the races. Just whoever I came across, I wrote about. <laughs> I've been known to them. Well, no, they, they knew I was writing. And, um, and so, so on one level, I, I think its appeal stems from that sort of human urge that everyone has to just explore <laughs> the natural world or just find out what's beyond the horizon. And ultra-running sort of allows you to do that, doesn't it? Yeah. Because these are... These are extreme environments. I mean, it's not just tourism, it's, it's extreme environments. Yeah, I mean, there are ultra... So I did one ultramarathon on a, on a running track in South London. Yes, so well, we can talk about They're not that. always <laughs> extreme environments, but, but often there's this sense of, of into the wild, mm. people getting out uh, beyond the usual you know, hiking trails. You go really off the beaten track, like I ran 100 miles across the desert. And there's this sense, there's almost a culture that, that people joke about the ultra-running beard, and there's this kind of, uh, yeah, a lot of vegan ultra-runners. There's a kind of lifestyle that goes with it that's to do with getting getting into nature, getting lost in nature, and, and confronting nature and being part of it. And I spoke to a great South American ultra-runner who was trying to put his finger on the difference between like hiking up a mountain and running up a mountain. And he said, one is like being a pack horse. You've got all the stuff and you're laboring up. The other's like being a condor, he said. But it's just, you just, there's something about moving light in the mountain. You become part of the landscape. Uh, and I, I thought about it a lot. You don't necessarily spend as much time looking at it, taking in the views, but you're interacting with it. You're, when you're running down those hills, you're kind of using the rocks, you're using the tree stumps, you're, and then you're climbing up, you're, you know, every, you are, Kind of fully immersed in that landscape in a way I think you're not when you're going at a slower pace and you're 
gone there to look at it and to observe it. You're kind of you're moving through it. You're like one of the animals. And I think there's a real appeal to that, and there's a real sense of getting back to your kind of in touch with your own primitive self as well. Like that's you know, ancient humans, prehistoric humans. This is how we you know we were animals, and, and there's that inner essence that's still there, and you can connect with that when you really push yourself to move across the landscape. I think um, uh, sort of moving on from there, actually, uh, sort of as you complete uh, as you complete these races and, and you're, you you spend a lot of time describing how you feel during those races, um, and which is uh, uh, it's one of the exceptional qualities of the book actually because the the descriptions of the sort of mental and physical pain that you have to go through are really quite harrowing at times, um, and I think that's a, a central feature of ultra running, which, which, um, what you need to explore to, to understand why it's so popular. Yeah, uh, I mean, ultra runners talk about the pain cave. Yes, the pain cave. They don't talk about it as something they hope to avoid. They talk about it with relish, <laughs> and they say, you know, that's the bit I love when you get into that pain cave, and. Uh, it took me a long time to get my head around that. I initially was attracted to ultra running because I thought I'd make these, have these incredible achievements, and I thought the big, the big appeal would be the outcome, would be conquering the challenge and getting to the finish and going, oh my god, I've just done that. But actually, quite often, I get to the finish with a sense of anticlimax. Like, oh, it's over. That's a shame. <laughs> because you find a kind of peace in, 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 in the process going through through the pain cave. <laughs> it sounds bizarre. But it's not it's not pain as in like pain, it's 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 fatigue. It's like your body coming alive in a way. Uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Would you <laughs> mind, have to read it. <laughs> yes. Would you mind uh, reading a, a small excerpt from your book so people can Yeah, maybe that's the best way to get a, a proper idea of Yeah. So I mean, I went through every, every single race, I, I had a moment of crisis, and, and the book opens with one of those moments of crisis, so as it's the prologue, it, it kind of, it's designed to introduce the book, so it's, a, it's, it's the appropriate thing to read. So, uh, so I'll, just, I'll just jump in. I'm slumped on the ground, my back against a mound of sand, staring out through smudged yellow sunglasses. All I can see, as far as the sky, is sand. Sand with scratches of dry grass. A wasteland. A faint trail runs through it. Tire tracks that suggest civilization can't be far away. But I'm not moving. My legs are like two bits of rusted machinery I've been dragging along with me for days. It feels good to put them down. My groin, right where the front of my left leg fuses to my body, screeches and grinds with each step when I run. But sitting here, it becomes a faint, almost pleasurable pain. My thoughts seem to exist outside myself. My essence, my core being, is just sitting here, melting into the sand, too exhausted to think. But the officers in my head, those left in charge of making sure I stay alive, are in frantic discussion. I can't sit here all day. I'm low on water. The sun is too hot. I've come too far. Think of all the distance you've run.
countless miles across this soul-sapping sand. You can't stop now. The end, the beach, the sea is only a few miles away. You can do it, one small step at a time. You didn't come all this way to quit this close to the finish. I recall vaguely the various strategies I've used to keep myself going up until now. When things first got tough, around day two, I got myself pumped up. Come on, tough guy, I told myself. You can do this. You show them. The desert may be tough, but it won't stop Mr. Finn. I actually called myself Mr. Finn. The race was already twisting my brain. By day five, though, the bravado had been replaced by tenderness, as I cajoled myself along through the night stage. It's okay. Don't worry. You'll make it. You're going to be fine. Just keep moving. The night lay dark and still around me. The sand under my feet brutally soft. But I got through it. 26 miles in seven and a half hours. But I got there. But now, so close to the end, my will has run dry. The voices in my head are futile. I am not moving. That's what you're supposed to do. Get up and drag yourself to the finish. But why? Who set up these stupid rules? You don't have to play along like some prize poodle. Hmm, this is interesting. I shuffle myself around so the grass is less spiky, stretching my legs, pushing my feet out in front of me. My shoes are full of sand, like they're about three sizes too small. I've been coping with it like this for days. It's a minor irritation among everything else. The really courageous thing to do right now the genius in my head continues, would be to listen to yourself, not everyone else. Everyone else will tell you that you have to finish, that nobody quits this close to the end. But you're different. You play by your own rules. You have nothing to prove. If you want to stop, you just stop. Sitting here, not moving, is beginning to feel like the ultimate act of rebellion. I'm quickly turning into the James Dean of desert running. Someone will come and find me eventually, They'll try to egg me on to the finish, but I won't play ball. I'll show them. I play by my own rules. <coughs> hey, Finn! I look up. An elderly German couple in their 60s are standing over me. I can't quite tell if they're smiling or grimacing. Are you okay? Gundren asks me kindly. She looks in shock. Come on, get up, barks Hans Martin. Follow us. Before I know it, I'm hauling myself up and we're walking off in single file wading through the sand again, my groin wincing. Everything, my clothes, my backpack, my headscarf, is stuck to me with sweat. For days the sun has had me in its vice, slowly squeezing, wringing both my body and spirit dry. But now I'm up and moving again, following Hans Martin's commanding footsteps. Nobody speaks. They're nearly as exhausted as I am, but we plough on. It's only walking although they have poles and are striding along fairly seriously. I watch Hans Martin's lolling back, backpack as he picks his way through the tufts of sand. And eventually I begin to recover. I begin to feel a tiny spasm of life return to my legs. My head starts to clear. Without even meaning to, I start to trot. Ah, good, good, he says. Go, we'll see you at the finish. And with that, I begin to run. The dunes are rising up like mountains now, the biggest dunes of the race, but I can almost smell the sea. I take off my glasses and shove them in my pocket. The sand is white, 
I scale the giant shifting slope, skipping and stumbling down the other side. I imagine I'm a child, excited, running for the sea. A few times I think I'm there, but another dune looms up before me. But I'm high on adrenaline now. I can sense the finish, calling to me. And then, suddenly, I'm there. An arc of blooms, tents, people lolling in the waves. I'm almost the last finisher, and most people are already relaxing in camp, cooking food, washing their clothes. A couple of Dutch runners spot me crossing the line and offer me a muted round of applause, but they've long since lost their enthusiasm for cheering people across the finish. A bored photographer steps out from his seat in the shade and points his camera at me. He asks me how I feel. For the race video, he says. I don't know what to say. After everything I've been through, I should be bubbling over with emotion. But instead, I feel strangely muted. That was hard, is all I can muster. Bloody hard. And with that, I unclip my backpack and stumble down to the beach and walk straight into the cool waters of the Sea of Oman, collapsing into the waves. I'm never doing anything as stupid as that ever again, <laughs> I say to myself. <laughs> Yes, of course you do. <laughs> um, now, um, going, I mean, the pain. Uh, I've, got, I've got a quote here from a, 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 an experienced ultra runner who uh, specialises in distances of over 200 miles. She's called Courtney, uh, I think it's pronounced Dollwater. And she's, she's, she says this about pain. I just ignore it. I don't give the pain any value. I talk to myself and I tell myself I'm fine, even though everything might not be fine. So, one question I'd like to ask you, how are you able to distinguish between the pain of real physical injury and the imagined pain of your head telling you, I don't want you to carry on? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's not imagined pain, I mean... Well, real pain, but, <laughs> but, but you but argue that... You, that you do, yeah, you do, you do, your you do, you can basically embrace that pain and get into that pain and start, uh, start dwelling on that pain. Uh, or you can choose to do what Courtney DeWalter does and, and all good ultra runners do and say, oh, that's just, that's just a minor, mm. minor uh, inhibitant here. I can deal with this. And I, it took me a long time, and I think experience plays a part in this. I, I Initially, the first five or six races I did, when I got that pain, I thought, that's it, I'm finished. I, I you know, sitting down by the side of the trail. I can't carry on. You know, my wife's here, she witnessed this a few times. I just, I'm finished, I can't carry on, everything's hurting. There's no way, I can't do another step. And then two hours later, you're running along strongly, feeling great, <laughs> going, how did that happen? And so there is this, uh, and so I started digging around into it, what, what's going on here. And there is a, there is a, a theory uh, called central governor theory, and it's that your, your mind controls your sense of fatigue and your sense of tiredness. And it does that for a reason, because it wants to protect you. It wants you to not hurt yourself, and it, for two reasons. It doesn't want you to hurt yourself, and also it wants to keep some energy in reserve in case a real emergency happens, in case you really need it. Uh, so it starts shutting you down early. It starts telling you, oh, you're, you're too tired to carry on. And as a non-experienced uh, ultra runner, or, or anyone, anyone who's done a 10K has probably got to this point where you think, oh, I need to slow down, I'm struggling, or even a 5K. Uh, and, and that's your brain telling you to slow down. And it, the guy who came up with this theory is a South African guy, Tim Noakes. 
he said, you look at uh, marathon runners, if they have a sprint finish and they cross the line, one beats the other. Uh, if by all rights, if they're given everything, it's the Olympic final, they should collapse, they should be like on the floor being taken to hospital because they're given everything. But actually, they're running around doing a lap of honor. They had more energy. Why didn't they go faster? And it's because there's a, there's a mental inhibitor there. And, uh, and in ultra running, this comes many times. There are many times in ways of uh, tiredness. And you can really, you know, you can think of finish. You can feel, I mean, I felt like the soles of my feet were burning. I felt like my quad muscles were on fire. It's just like so many times I felt like my, my arms were aching, my head was aching. And you just recover. You, you take a bit of time out. You, take some food on, you just tell yourself, this is, this is just, I'm just making this up. And you really, you can, you can go through it, you can almost shut that, uh, shut that feeling down. And it's actually interesting because I've done all sorts of experiments where, for example, like people are taking a gel will give them energy, but actually to show that it's mental, they've done experiments where you just taste the gel, you don't actually swallow it, you spit it out, you have some energy drinks, swirl it around in your mouth, you spit it out. It has the same effect, because it tricks the brain. Actually, we've got some energy coming, we're okay. We can switch the, we can switch the taps back on. Uh, and it's an amazing thing to know and to realize when you're in an ultra race, because you know, often this happens when you've still got like 40, 50 miles to go, and, and that can be a, mentally that can be really challenging. You think, I'm, I'm finished, and I'm still at 50 miles to go, and you start thinking about the finish. But if you can do what she does and just say, I just ignore it. Someone said it's like a it's like a needy dog. Don't give it attention. You know, the, the pain. <laughs> just ignore it, and it will uh, it will calm down. And it just goes away, and it'll come back. It'll go away, and it'll come back. And it, it's a very different pain to an injury, which is a very sharp, sudden pain. Although I have had points in ultra runs where it did feel like an injury. And I just told myself, that's that's not an injury. You know, you're gonna have to try harder than that. I'd say to myself. And uh, five minutes later, that that pain was was not there anymore. So. Saying that, I did see people in the medical tents at halfway through an ultra run with their, their knee hanging off and oh, no. carry on. <laughs> well, so, you know, there, there is a point at which you will have to stop eventually. I mean, this is, this is the thing, though, isn't it? You're halfway up a mountain uh, at night. Uh, there's a steep drop on one side, maybe. Yeah. You're sleep deprived. Yeah. You're physically exhausted, or you think you are. You're hallucinating because you hallucinating a lot in your races. So, how are you actually capable of making any rational decisions <laughs> about whether you're injured or not? Because there's this race in the Pyrenees, which I think is the one you're talking about. You went to the medical tent and they said, oh yes, come in, Mr. Finn. Uh, they gave you a checkover. They said, Mr. Finn, I think uh, it would be really good if you didn't carry on. Yeah, this was, was halfway medic, through. Yeah, yeah a medic, uh, a professional. <laughs> and then you say, and then you just don't, you just ignore him, and you go on and you carry on, and you run another forty-five miles. Yeah. What was interesting about that is the thing he said I was hurt, I was injured because of was like about tenth of my list of. <laughs> so really, if that's what he was, I couldn't stop for that. I mean, that was a very minor pain. But I didn't want to tell him all the other things because then he might really make me stop. Uh, yeah, there is, there is, there is a bloody mindedness, and there is a sense that ultra running is. I did a bit of research into this as well. It's not actually good for you. You, know, you are. You know, it's, 
It's not like you know, if you go out in Man Park Run and, and you come out a couple of times a week, yeah, that's healthy. You know, that's that's a, a good, healthy way of being a runner. Uh, running 100 miles through the mountains is it causes damage to your body. You, you can fall over. You can, lots of runners end up hurting themselves falling over. There, there's there's research that it's not good for your heart to do extreme running. Uh, but there was an interesting bit of research uh, done by some people who found that it wasn't so good for you. And then they did a follow-up piece of research where they asked, it was a huge number of runners, like 10,000 runners, if you knew conclusively that ultra running was bad for you, would you give it up? And 85% of people said no. So the people are not really, when you get into ultra running, it's no longer about fitness and health. It becomes about setting yourself a challenge, getting over it, whatever comes at you. And so you're not going to give give up at the first sign of pain. Well, some people do, but <laughs> you don't need to. Your body is a lot stronger. And it's an amazing lesson from that, actually, is that your body and your powers of strength are a lot stronger than you actually realize. And, and this central government is always limiting, is always controlling your amount of energy and the amount of power that you use because it doesn't want you to hurt yourself. It's protecting you. But there are times of emergencies, and there have been stories of like a grandmother seeing a child under a car and lifts the car up. And these are stories, there's debate, debate about whether they're true, but there are stories of peaks of superhuman strength in an emergency, in a complete emergency, where basically the, the handbrakes are all taken off in the mind, and it allows the body to do what it needs to do. And so when you're running an ultra run, you get experienced enough to know you've been here, you've been in this position, and half an hour later, it felt brilliant. It felt completely through it. And so you just, you just, you, know, you just tell yourself, no, I'm not stopping. Sorry. But it, but that was a long process for me to get to that point where I could do that. Uh, and yeah, I needed a bit of help <laughs> along the way. Now, you've raced all around the world in these fantastic locations. Um, but the one that 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 really. Uh, appeal to me was the, the race in Tooting in South London, <laughs> which, is a, which is one of the most mundane places, actually, for a, one of the sort of more iconic uh, races in the ultra world. And this is the 24-hour track race, so just to explain it to people who don't know, when I first heard about this race, I thought this is totally nuts, I can't really exist as a thing. But it is a track, a 400-meter track, I think, and people run run, it, run round it for 24 hours. Um, and it sounds balmy, and yet it, in many ways it's a perfect ultra event because um, the race director says, this is not you against a mountain, you're not having to compete against a mountain, this is just you against you. And in many ways it was the most difficult race that you faced. Yeah, yeah it was, it was, I mean one, one it's quite interesting, when I first told people about this race, when I said I was doing a 24-hour race and I'm trapped, most people said, God, that sounds so boring. That was the most common response. Uh, weirdly, it wasn't boring at any point. There was, there was, a, there was a lot of people around. You had your, your crew, your support crew, everyone had their support crews. The other runners, you're with them the whole time. So you create this feeling of being a togetherness. Everybody's going through this thing together. Uh, especially when you get into the dead of the night, it's quite, it's quite, a, it's quite an amazing atmosphere at the place. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, it was, it was challenging. One thing that's particularly challenging, and one thing that I kept thinking in lots of my other races, is that 
as long as I keep moving, I'm getting to the finish. The finish line is a physical point somewhere, <coughs> wherever it is. I don't know where it is, but I know that it's, this is the route. If I keep moving, I'll get there. Because this was a time race, 24 hours, you are allowed to stop if you want to, because it's a race. You can sit down on every lap if you want. And the more tired you get, the more the temptation is just to sit down, because the clock's still ticking. And so you don't have that drive to keep moving. And so you have to create that drive yourself. You have to urge yourself. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, the, that was one of the races I think I'd had up to that point. I think the reason it was so challenging was I was still learning this idea that I, that I was telling myself I was more tired than I was and I was indulging myself. I was really focusing on my, my weaknesses and my pain. And it was particularly true in this race. I guess there was nothing else to take my mind away from it. There wasn't a mountain to get over or anything like that. But... Uh, yeah, I just, I was, I, I kind of ended up giving up sitting, sitting in the car, thinking I wasn't going to carry on. And then, and then uh, it was, I think it was the fact that these other runners were still going by and they looked worse than I felt. <laughs> and they were just, because they, they were so close to you, you could, you felt all their stories. Each person, you got to know their own, each story very individually because you got to know them all so well. And you thought, he's still going, that guy is still going. And there was a brilliant moment where I was sitting in the back of my car, 100% decided I was finished. That was it. And this guy came over to me and asked me what, I said, what's wrong? And he said, are you injured? I said, no, no, I'm not injured, but just everything hurts. Everything. I can't take another step. And he said to me, oh, he said, be ashamed to quit now, just when it's getting interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, that's like the essence of the Imperial Ultra, is you get yourself to that space, and then you see what happens. And if you stop at that point, you're kind of missing the whole appeal of all training. That, you get yourself to a point where you're completely broken. And what happened, and what happened to me time after time, is when I did get back out there, he said, you never know what's waiting for you if you go back out there. And time and time again, there was, there was a kind of... Self, that race is actually called the Self-Transcendence 24-Hour Track Race. And I would honestly describe it as self-transcendence, what happened is, because I got back out there... And for the last three hours, I was running like it was a three-hour race. I felt amazing, and I felt so excited. And that was one of the races, and when they blew the hooter for the race to stop, I was like, I was disappointed, because I felt like I was just found my peace with this race, and I was just now dealing with it. And it was quite an amazing experience to have been at such a low in the middle of the night, sitting there feeling so sorry for myself, feeling so broken, and then to be you know, running as strongly as I've ever run at the end was, was, was a real experience and also a lesson to myself, which I used in the, in the subsequent sure. races. And um, one of the most fascinating chapters um, in the book uh, addresses a question that I've often asked myself. You're a marathon runner and you get bored of marathons. You do ultra marathons. Well, what if you're an ultra runner and you get bored of ultra marathons? What would you do then? Would you just pack up? And, but the answer, I've discovered through your book, is called Fastest Known Times. And this is the uh, extreme of the extreme here. And you talk about it a little bit. Maybe you can sort of talk about it with us to, so people understand what, what on earth goes on here. Yeah. I mean, part of it harks back to the original into the wild spirit of ultra running. So the idea was that you would traverse you know, 100 miles of mountains and it was just you and the mountains out in nature. 
And as ultra running has got bigger, a lot more of these races have got more people in them, they're more well organized, there's medical tents, there's, there's uh, aid stations, you turn up in these races, sometimes a tent this kind of size and just tables full of food, chocolate, crisps, I don't know, pies depending on the country, noodles, you know, all sorts of things, and you eat food. But some people are kind of harking back to that original feeling of just being lost in the wild. So they set themselves their own challenge. It might be so one that somebody did was run the, the whole Southwest Coast Path. A friend of, friend of mine who I, who I ended up running with. Uh, so that's 630 miles. So he sets himself the challenge of running it as fast as he can. He, he ran it in 10 days, amazingly. Uh, or, you know, you, you find a trail in some real wilderness in Scotland or in there's a famous trail in the US called the Appalachian Trail, which is two and a half thousand miles long. And people just set out on that trail. They just set out, start the watch at the beginning, and then they, they usually, they, they, there's two different types. There's a supported FKT and an unsupported FKT. So a supported FKT, you will have people meeting you at various points on the way just to check you're okay, help you top up your food supplies, you know, look out for you, maybe give you a charge watch. <laughs> Help you charge your watch, uh, and then there's unsupported where you totally go go alone and you go off alone. Uh, and, and there are some epic challenges that people run across New Zealand, across Iceland. You pick you pick your own route, and, and you uh, you know even within Cornwall, I'm sure there's there's all sorts of FKTs being set. And I'm from Devon, I know that there's one across Dartmoor. Uh, yeah, no, I mean. Uh, uh, I mean, one of the, the people, I mean, the, the, one of the lovely things about the book is that it puts a human face onto ultra running. So you get to meet this wonderful cast of characters uh, who are all slightly crazy. Uh, and some of them have had very tough life experiences and use ultra running as a way of uh, dealing with that. There's, there's one uh, gentleman uh, from uh, Catalonia called uh, Kylian Hornet. And, and he scaled Everest once on his own without uh, artificial oxygen or ropes. And uh, he suffered cramps and uh, vomited every few meters. But he wasn't happy with that, the way that had turned out. <laughs> he didn't get the record. <laughs> he didn't get the record, no, that's right. So he did it again within six days, is yeah, that correct? Six now, days, yes. now, you managed to speak with him. He, he sounds like quite an intense guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, he's the Kenyan of, of ultra running in that he, a lot of his, his he, he, he was born in a mountain hut up mm. in the Pyrenees. He was, he scaled his first peak at 18 months, he said. Uh, he used to run around in the mountains at three and four barefoot. And so he, he's coming from it from quite a, a unique perspective. But he, uh, yeah, he, 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 he's an interesting guy, he's like the king of ultra running basically, and there's a, he wins the UTMB race, he's won a few times, he, he's won all the big races, uh, but he, he's, uh, yeah, he, so he has this thing called Summits of My Life, where mm. there's seven peaks around the world, but not necessarily the seven biggest peaks, there's seven peaks that as a child, as a mountain obsessed child, he was obsessed, most obsessed with, yeah, posters of these seven mountains on his wall. <laughs> and so he's uh, he's gone to get the record on each one, uh, and yeah, he, he's a very simple, humble, humble guy. It was it's quite an interesting discussion that goes around that because lots of people try and emulate him and they try and run up these mountains and, and it causes problems because people can't do the things he can do and they end up getting in trouble and the mountain guys have to go up there. 
So he has to answer a lot of questions about the safety aspect of it. And you know, he says everybody needs to know their own skills and, and limits. But he said one nice thing to me. He said, uh, you know, there, there is a risk involved. And you have to take that risk and measure that risk. But he said life is about risk. You know, life is not sitting on the sofa. Life is about risk. And he said even, it doesn't have to even be a physical risk. He said, you know, just saying I love you to somebody is a risk. And he said just... Life is about taking chances. So, so he, that was very nice. But, but what's interesting about him is that he's very famous. He's like the most famous ultra runner. And people love him. And he's got huge sponsorship deals. There's a there's an Ecuadorian guy who's going around breaking all his records on all the mountains. <laughs> he doesn't get a look in. He's also a lovely guy. And I, I never quite know why this is. It's like the world can only handle one crazy mountain guy. <laughs> so he, he was... Uh, he was actually a mountain guide, that was his job, this guy from Ecuador. Uh, and he was taking some clients to Kilimanjaro, to climb Kilimanjaro. And while they were, after the day's walking, they were in the mountain hut, sleeping and eating, he'd start running up and down Kilimanjaro. <laughs> and one of, one of the guys said, you know, you, you've been up to the top again. He said, yeah. <laughs> you know, you should try and run the whole thing, see how long it takes you. He's like, you think so? So after the trip finished, he ran up to the top of Kilimanjaro and back down in six hours which is usually a six-day hike. <laughs> <laughs> and then found out he'd broken Killian Jornet's Fournette's record. Uh, and uh, he'd never heard of Killian Fournette. So he, uh, he, he suddenly became, for a brief moment, everyone was like, who is this Ecuadorian guy? Uh, and his boss in the Ecuadorian mountain climbing company he worked for said, you know, that guy Killian has just, just broken the record of Aconcagua which is the highest mountain in the Andes. He said, you've been up there loads of times. I'm sure you could run that quick. So he's like, yeah, I probably could. So he ran up that, like two weeks after Killian had been up there and broke the record there. And so suddenly I thought, well, no, this is, this is interesting. This is going to get interesting. And, and he's since broken the record on Denali, which is the highest mountain in North America, and on Elbrus. Elbrus, is that it? In, in Russia, the highest mountain in, in Europe. Uh, so four of Killian's seven summits, he, he is now broken. He's, he's targeting Everest as well, which Killian hasn't actually got the record on, but he's targeting that record. So, so Karl Egelov, really, is the big star. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knows who he is. I, I'm his one man <laughs> championing his, his name. Um, but he's just as intense as well. Yeah, there's an intensity about ultra runners. Yeah. Uh, there's a funny moment where I keep meeting them and interviewing them, and, and they all seem like, just like you say, intense. There's this look about them and the, and the way they talk. And then this woman, this American woman, had just won the Comrades Marathon, uh, Camille Heron. And uh, I managed to sneak into the prize giving ceremony the next morning. And I saw her sitting at a table, and I thought I'd just go and introduce myself. And I said, Hi, I'm writing a book about ultra running. It'd be lovely to talk to you at some point. And she just turned to me and said, You have to talk to me. I've got a crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> With these crazy looking eyes, like wow, okay. I was like, well, what's a crazy story? And she said, when I was 16, my whole family were made homeless by a tornado. <laughs> so, wow. It's just like you ask any ultra, like, what you know, what's your story? And they're going to come out with something. But they're, they're an incredibly welcoming community. I mean, that's the thing. And uh, with uh, an ultra running, has got these values that. Uh, you know, everybody enjoys other people's success. They're very helpful. There's a camaraderie about it. There's money in the sport, but it isn't like other sports where it's sort of a wash with money. You can, you can 
can do well or if you get sponsorship. Uh, doping's no, not so much of an issue. Um, but as the sport, just to wrap up, as the sport um, progresses, as it, uh, its popularity increases, do you think it's going to be able to hold on to those values? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in some ways you have... You can, I, I think both, there are people within the sport who are worried about that, who are worried about losing the, the essence of it. But there are, for, for every race like the UTMB, which is getting bigger and bigger, there are races like the races in Cornwall where you can turn up and pay a fiver. Mm. And they, they exist, there are ultra races like that as well. Uh, and so I think both things can exist, coexist together. Uh, and and, and I, I, I write a lot about the fact that there are no East Africans in ultra running. Mm. I, I would like that to happen, I, and I've made uh, some efforts to try and get that started. And uh, and some people complain about that. They say, oh, but then the sport will just become like marathon running, and these guys will dominate. And, and I, I just think if you if you want to be, a, you know, a sport should be about the best, you know, facing off against each other, and that's what makes it exciting. And the UTMB people love watching it because Killian was there, and Jim Wamsley, and Bo Zachman, all these great stars, and in the women's race as well, the you know, all the stars come together, and it's a real, it's a real face-off. But at the same time, like the London Marathon, you know, most people doing the London Marathon, most people watching the London Marathon are not really watching it for the runners at the front. There's a whole community there around park run. I mean, you can say 5K races has got almost the biggest community in the world, the park run. And so I think two, the two things can coexist quite happily together. And, uh, and I think that's an amazing thing about running is you can compete with elite sports men and women on the same start line you can be there you can't do that in many other sports uh, if any so, excellent on that really positive note i think we'll wrap up uh the conversation we've got a bit of time for q a i think so you're burning ultra questions now is the time uh this gentleman here put his hand up very quickly hold on i think there's going to be a microphone yeah, on your way this gentleman here you talked about the disappointment that you sometimes experience when they call the end of the race. Do you ever just keep running anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I, tell you, I tell you, the disappointment is, mi is mixed with enough <laughs> for me to stop. Uh, although, the, probably the closest I got to that was the, the track race, where I was quite tempted, but everybody is stopping. I think I, I, my self-consciousness probably stopped me from carrying on, but I did feel like it there. Other ones, I, I, was, I was disappointed, but relieved as well, at the same time. So no, I never did. <laughs> this gentleman over there. Uh, yeah, two, two separate questions. One, obviously this takes a terrific trauma on, on your body. What is the commonest injury, joint or otherwise, that an ultra runner would suffer, you know, during their career? And the, the second question is that, it's coming through in the press that women are becoming very, very good at ultra running. And my question to you is that will they eventually become parallel or even overtake men in this particular sport? And if they're not doing it at the moment, is it because there aren't enough of them uh, to compete compared to the, compared to the male? I mean, the first question, I, I don't really know, but what's quite interesting about ultra running, because you're running slower, there's not actually as much impact. So I think a, a road marathon, you're more likely to get like knee injuries and, and, and shin splints and those kind of things. I think with ultra running, it's more like black toenails and blisters and, and 
groin injuries and, and things like that. So, but I don't, I, I'm, that's all anecdotal. Uh, but the, the women competing with the men is a, is a fascinating uh, side of the sport. There was a, a recent race to run the entire Pennine Way, which is 268 miles. And it was won by a woman, Jasmine Parents. And she finished the race, went home, didn't really realize that this was had become quite a big story. She had a 14-month-old baby, which she was actually expressing breast milk for on the way. She, she went, went home that evening, had dinner, had a rest, saw her family, went to bed, got up in the morning, and suddenly it was big news. The newspapers were writing about it. So she was interviewed on Good Morning Britain on BBC, and they said, how, you know, you won this race, you've been all the men, how far did you win by? And she looked at her watch, so as far as I know, the first man is still running. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, he was that far ahead, just won by 15 hours in the end. And, and the, guy, the man who won was the previous course record holder. So, yeah, he was no slouch. Uh, and, and, and so it is amazing. There is a feeling that if Killian Hornet had been in that race, you probably would have beaten her. The, the, if you take the absolute best man and the absolute best woman, there is still the physical advantage that men have. But what happens in ultra running is it becomes more and more about your personality, about your mind, about your uh, organizational skills, your mental, your, your emotional stability, all these things. And, and obviously they're not gender specific. So, and there, there may be arguments for women are better at some of those things. That's I'm not a debate I'm going to get into. <laughs> But definitely the physical side, even though it's a huge physical undertaking, weirdly the physical percentage-wise, the physical, your, your kind of running ability and your strength play a smaller factor in getting to the end. So it kind of levels the playing field. Uh, and, and there are fewer women doing ultra running than there are, like, say, marathon running or half marathon running. The fields are usually about 80% male. So the fact that women are winning the races outright is, is particularly impressive and shows there is a lot more potential there. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of reasons behind that. Again, things which are, are kind of anecdotal, but there is a, there is a sense that, yeah, there, there could be much more uh, women winning and doing well there. Courtney DeWalter, who you talked about, she's won races outright as well against all the men. Uh, so, yeah, it, I think it's, it's brilliant and it's very inspiring for, for, for you know, women to see <coughs> that you can beat the men at something, which is you know, it's great. Right. Who, who else has put a question here? Oh, the gentleman over there. Thank you. Um, could you just uh, give an outline of your, your training, your own personal training? Like probably everybody, I don't think I ever fully trained quite enough. <laughs> but I, I was probably training about seven times, at the peak of my fitness for this, I was probably running about seven times a week. So I'd usually run one day twice a week and then have a day off. Uh, that's kind of my Kenyan uh, training in that they always have to have a, a day's rest to let the body recover. Uh, it's actually, it, you don't have to do that much more than say, I mean, I'd run six marathons before I started this. So the training was very similar. The only difference is the long run, what I realized, particularly as I was going to be running in the mountains, was less about speed and distance. Uh, it was more about elevation. So I would go to either Dartmoor or the coast, coast path and I wouldn't worry about how fast I was running. I didn't need to worry about what pace I was going. I just had to run for four hours uh, and as much hills as possible. So I was going up the hills. And, and you learn that it's okay to walk as well, which is something, as uh, up until that point, 
as up to marathon. The idea of walking in a training room, I just felt like there must be something wrong with me. I can't do that. But you actually realize, yeah, you're here to, you know, just to be out. And, and in some ways, you enjoy where you are a lot more. When you, you're still moving through it, but you're, you're not stressing about the clock and the time. And so, so I, there were times where yeah, I was, and especially with having a family with young children, there were times where I needed to get my run in before everyone else. I didn't have the whole day to do it, so I'd get up at four in the morning, go out on a rainy day, and run four hours on the coast path. I did one along North North Cornwall actually. Uh, I'm not going to remember where where I was, but uh, along the coast path, a four hour run. It's lovely. Yeah, and it's always hard getting up in the morning, getting out the door. But once you're out there, and, and because you're going at a, a comfortable speed, it's just yeah, it's fun. It's enjoyable. You bring food with you. You bring a backpack. Eat on the way because. That's another thing you have to practice because you need to do that in a race. I'd never done that before, so you experiment. It's quite fun the night before deciding what you're going to bring with you peanut butter sandwiches or rice balls or whatever. You know. That was leading on to my <laughs> next question, which is how obsessive are you about your diet? No, I'm not obsessive at all, but you did, you did have to learn to uh, practice you know, working out what was good for you. But then what was interesting after what was fine after four hours wasn't necessarily what was fine after 24 hours. Uh, and, and that became quite tricky because I was never doing training runs of more than four hours really. And so 20 hours into a race, you can't, you can't even produce saliva anymore, so you can't eat anything solid. So you're then down to soups and, and things like this. <laughs> Fine, final question if I'm me. Um, I think we're a bit short. Is it quick? It's quick. Very quick. Do you, do you think now that the marathon has been broken psychologically that we'll see a lot more runners? going sub two, two hours in the I, I'm not sure because it was such a controlled environment yeah. and not, unless you reproduce that I'm not sure I don't think so thank you okay well I'm afraid we have to stop there and Aaron Anders is going to be signing books in the main uh, site um, across over there but I think it's been a real pleasure thank you very much thank you